You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, hello again, everyone. This is Doug Thorpe, and you are listening to another episode of Leadership Powered by Common Sense. We're the show where we try to help you as a business owner or uh, uh, in a role of leadership somewhere in the business world, find better ways to do the things you've got to do and, and things you may not know about. And today, my guest is an expert in employment law. And uh, I know this is a, a real keen area that, uh, as we were talking in the green room, owners in particular of smaller businesses tend to trip into this and have very unhappy accidents that may, in fact, cost them greatly. And uh, we want to talk about some of the basic things to think about to protect you from that sort of risk. His name is Alan Crone. He's out of the Memphis area. Alan, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Doug. I appreciate it. To look forward to our conversation. You bet. You bet. I always like to ask my guests to give us a little bit of backstory and uh, kind of the journey that that put you where you are or how early in life did you decide this was the ex, uh, specialty area you wanted to get into? Well, I'm going to date myself a little bit. Um, you know, my my exposure to the legal profession was watching Perry Mason reruns. Uh, I'm not old enough to have watched it, uh, you know, the original airing, but I watched him in reruns. And I've all, I always liked the idea. I was a theater major for a couple of semesters. So I've always been drawn to the drama of the courtroom. And when, um, when it came time to put my political science degree uh, at uh, to work, I decided that I needed uh, a postgraduate degree and I went to law school. And my intent was to become a trial lawyer. And that's really what I've become. And, and over the years, I've migrated towards employment law. I just find it, I find it fascinating intellectually and factually. And it's really, really important. There are a few areas of the law that aren't important, obviously. Uh, but you know, you're in America, your relationship with, with what you do for a living is so a big part of who we are. And uh, I always say what we do is who we are in America. And uh, uh, so when 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 that relationship is is uh, ruffled, if you will, or threatened, uh, it's it's a big deal. And it's important for employers to uh, to be fair and to see the employment laws not so much as a burden, but as good business. You know, if you're complying with the employment laws, that's good business. It's good business not to discriminate, not to harass people, to pay people what you uh, a living wage, what you what what they're at value they're adding to your enterprise. So uh, that's that's kind of how I got here. You know, uh, uh, I, I can't say that I went to law school saying I'm going to I want to do employment law. But uh, over the course of the first five years of my uh, my practice, I ended up doing more and more employment law. And I really I really enjoy it. <laughs> When when we think of this arena, obviously it's pretty huge, and I, I, I guess what I would like to frame, and, and, and you correct me if you disagree, but 
I've always looked at business law at two levels. There, there are clearly some federal statutes that are out there that uh, do impact businesses somewhat, sometimes, depending on the law, regardless of how big you are. The idea, if you're going to write a paycheck to somebody, you become subject to those federal statutes in some areas. And then there's always state law. And sometimes I'm told I don't live in one of those areas, but even there could be city ordinances and city rules about employment engagement. And I'm a Texas boy, and we've always been a right to work state or free will or whatever the, the you want to call it. So it's, it's been a little bit uh, more open, I think, at the local level than than some jurisdictions. But if, if, if that's an okay starting point, can you articulate some of the parameters that a business owner ought to be thinking about on how to line that up and get it right? Well, you're exactly right. There's some <clears throat> industries and professions that are more highly regulated than, than others. And, you know, that can impact employment relationships. Good example is OSHA. If, um, you know, if you're manufacturing uh, or you have high-risk uh, uh, activities going on, uh, on at your workplace, then the OSHA uh, rules and regulations are, are going to impact your employees more than uh, it would if you were maybe a retail establishment, uh, that sort of thing. And there are a whole host of those. Uh, I think the one of, of most universal application uh, are the wage and hour laws because uh, those apply to you I think it, it applies to just about every uh, employer uh, because just about every employer in 2023 is in, involved in, uh, in uh, interstate commerce. You know, if you've got a phone, if you uh, get deliveries from, uh, you know, outside your state, you're in interstate commerce. And so you've got to pay the federal minimum wage, which is $7.25, and you have to pay uh, one and a half times the employer's regular rate all hours they work over 40 in any given work week. And that sounds simple, but the the regs on that statute are are huge. And and so you you it's not common sense. It's it's legislation and, and rules and regulations, all of which are creatures of politics and and uh drafting. And so you've got to know what the you know what the law calls for. And if you if you guess wrong uh, it could be very. Uh, the penalty could be high. You uh, let's say that you're you've got a, a misclassified employee, someone you think you're paying as an independent contractor, and you're paying just a a flat rate to do a, a certain job for you, and it turns out that um, they're neither independent nor a contractor, and uh, they're they're judged to be an employee. You could be on the hook for one and a half times their regular rate for all hours worked over 40, um, plus double damages if it's deemed to be a willful violation, uh, plus your adversary's attorney's fees. So you, that can really add up to be a big, big problem, particularly for a small uh, employer. I've, I've represented a number of restaurants that um, you know may employ 20 or 30 people and they get the tip uh, credit uh, wrong and all of a sudden, they either owe the government, their employees, or the, their employee's lawyer six figures because they're able to go back two or three years and, and, and unscramble it. So uh, it's a um, 
that's one of those areas where if you if like I say if you guess wrong, um, it can be extremely uh, uh, devastating financially, and um, and so you really need to make sure that you understand uh, the exemptions, and that's one where you know I, I I encourage people to you know pay an employment lawyer for a, a sit down meeting where you go through uh, the those areas with 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 her and uh, have her give you a conservative opinion. And uh, uh, there's lots of ways to justify a determination, a legal determination that a particular uh, job is uh, exempt from overtime. But that if it sounds too good to be true, then it, it really may be too good to be true. And that's just an area where you may never get dinged, but when you do, it, it, it it's going to hurt. I, I recall back in the day, and uh, I, uh, I likewise date myself. Uh, I, I was a big fan of Perry Mason. I actually saw him, you know, in the in the original release. So, <laughs> uh, not not just the reruns, but um, you know, there was a point in time where the 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 basic classification between the so called exempt and non exempt relative to overtime was generally limited to people that were in a management position, they were considered exempt and everybody else was non-exempt. And the non-exempt were the ones that did get the time and a half for the overtime. The exempt, you know, if you're a manager working a 60-hour week, it was too bad, do dad. You just, you had your salary package, whatever was agreed, and that was it. And yes, you might have had an upside for a bonus. But even some of that, at what seemed pretty clear at the time, has changed materially between case law and modifications to those federal statutes, and that's why, to your 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 graphic reference of the the reg stack there, um, that's why I think that reg has gotten so compounded and and involved. And um, so is there any notion of a basic delineation anymore, or is it all about job function and job description? Well, it really is about, uh, it, it's really both and. Um, if you're paying somebody hourly, I don't care if, they're, they're, if they are your CEO. If you're paying them hourly, you owe them overtime, uh, full stop. Uh, so that's a, that's a pretty bright line. Uh, and one of the reasons why, you know, the law really hasn't changed all that much is that our workplaces have changed dramatically. You know, this was a Depression-era statute when it was drafted in the 30s. And uh, I have a colleague who says at that time, work was a place, not an activity. Now work is an activity, not necessarily a place. And it it really contemplates, you know, factory workers going in and clocking in, clocking out clear delineation between management and um, uh, and labor. And, you know, now they're just, there's a lot of, of blurred lines. Some of them, I think, intentionally to try to get around this, uh, you know, this requirement. And, uh, you know, the, the, the regs have grown as the, the variations of the kind of work people engage in have, have grown. And, um, you know, I think if you... Um, you know, it's like the independent contractor test. It can be very, very complicated, but I tell clients all the time, they say, is this employee uh, an independent contractor? And I say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a very facetious question. Are they independent and are they a contractor? And, you know, if you're honest with yourself on those, those two points, 
just about everybody can figure out who is and isn't an independent contractor. And I think this is unscientific, but I've just been doing this for 30 years. Probably 90% plus of the people walking around being called independent contractors uh, are not. They're employees. They come to your place 40 plus hours a week. They don't work for anybody else. You tell them what to do and how to do it. Um, then they're an employee, uh, yeah. you know, uh, and, and you really, I always say, um, and this kind of goes in business across the board. It's more expensive to be right than it is to be wrong. And what I mean by that is if you've got a defense to a lawsuit and you want to, you want to defend yourself, we may end up, particularly in a wage and hour case, you may end up spending multiple amounts more to defend yourself than just to have paid it out at the, at the beginning. Um, and so I just tell everybody, be you do what you want, be very, very conservative on this because otherwise um, you're, you know, you're going to be sending one of my kids to, to college or at least paying for their books one semester um, because it, yeah. it, it gets really, really complicated and it starts to bleed into other parts of your enterprise. Right. One person going to the Department of Labor um, can open up an investigation into every aspect of your business. If you've got 10 or 12 people, that's one thing. But if you've got 100, 120, 200 people with a lot of different uh, job classifications um, and this particular spotlight gets uh, gets put on you, it, it it can take a while to untangle, even if, like I say, even if you're, you're clean. Right, right. Let me ask you this. There's a, I'll call it common folklore, or there's a mentality that I frequently still to this day run into with small businesses. They say, well, none of that applies to me until I get to 50 employees. 50 is the cut line. And as long as I stay under 50, I'm, I'm a lot more freewheeling in what I get to do. Is it a fact or fiction? Uh, uh, not even close. Uh <laughs> You know, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act applies if you have 15 or more employees. In Tennessee, it applies if you have eight or more employees. So, uh, you know, the, the Fair Labor Standards Act, if you're in interstate commerce, if you have one employee, it applies to you. Uh, the uh, Family Medical Leave Act, uh, 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 no, excuse me. Yeah, the Family Medical Leave Act applies if you have 25 employees. Um and then uh, there's one that's 75. I, that may be, uh, I always get the, these numbers confused. I don't have them memorized, but uh, the, 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 the highest is 75. Most, anybody with more than 25 employees, I always encourage to have either a fractional HR person or a full-time HR person. Because right. once you have to start <clears throat> keeping track of uh, leave and, uh, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, you really need somebody full-time who's helping you with your benefits, helping you with compliance and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and, and the level of record keeping related to all of your handling of personnel matters really takes on a life of its own as well, right? That's right. You want to make sure you're, you're keeping good records, that you're documenting uh, what you do. We can talk a little bit about documentation and how it can, um, uh, bite you if uh, if you're not careful, but um, you know you're going to want to know uh, how you're treating people because again you get to 25, 30 employees and you get some turnover. 
you know, the faintest ink is uh, brighter than the, the sharpest memory. And you just forget what you've done. And then if you do something to one person and you do it differently for another, no matter what your motive was, um, it may look bad. So you, you want to make sure that you're being consistent and that you could, excuse me, that you can document everything. And, and as, as my grade school teacher would say, show your math, you know, be able to show this is how, how we got here. Yeah. I have a funny story I tell. It wasn't funny at the time by any means, but uh, I ran a business and had gotten up to about 35 employees here in the state of Texas. And I had a lady that was working for me that was a chronic attendance problem. She could not get to work to save herself. And um, I put her on all kinds of warnings and programs and things. And I was documenting. I had a stack of stuff. But my wife and I owned the company, and, and we felt fairly benevolent. We, we were not trying to be cruel dictators about anything. So, so the error on our way is we let this string out way too long. And after I had a folder of about 40 instances of her tardiness and everything, I put her on a three-strike notice, and I told her, you know, we're going to start the clock now. You've had all these others, and I itemized them all. I said, I'm going to give you three more chances, and if you blow these, you're out. You're, I'm going to have to let you go. Well, sure enough, it, it only took a week for her to burn through those three instances. So I gave her notice. Well, she ran to the State Workforce Commission and said I, I, I did an unfair termination. And I went through the whole appeal process, but they made me pay my state penalties for letting her go. And... Uh, I thought, well, dang, you know, but it was a, uh, it wasn't cheap, but it wasn't expensive either. And I just took my medicine and w tried to close the book on that. Well, several months later, I had another incident with an employee that I, I, I made a much shorter fuse on for my own good. And sure enough, they went to the, the state. And during the appeal process, which I I filed my appeal as an employer, um, the agent from the state was telling this person, <laughs> they said, now, Mr. Thorpe here has his rights as an employer. You know, if you don't behave, if you don't meet the standard, he has a right to let you go. And there's no no extra benefit you get because of that. As an example, if you had 40 absences, he could let you go and there would be no penalty. And I thought... Seriously, guys, <laughs> you put my old case in your training now on how to coach these uh, these appellate uh, reviewers. I thought, wow. So, you know, I had the whole table turned on me right there in the, in a moment. And I thought, oh, man, this is nuts. So I don't know what the real takeaway on that was other than I think the state was probably reviewing files and they probably told the first guy he was wrong in dinging me for what I had done that it was way beyond reasonable what I had tried to do. But so now they put it in their training to make it a point of it. <laughs> but I think my point in all that is if you're a business owner and you get yourself crossways with an agency, whether it's state or federal, you may not know what you're going to get. And, and you better, you know, really take the advice. And I like what you said about, getting early counsel, put a plan together and document it. And the other thing I understand, Alan, is that once you do 
describe a plan, and if you can prove that is how your business practice operates time and time again, you have a much stronger defense as opposed to not having any of that. I think that's absolutely right. And and I think that uh, decisiveness is important. And, you know, I can see that breaking uh, both ways, depending upon how, um, you know, well-documented the policy is and how well-documented the leniency is. Because one way to look at, at that, at the first anecdote is to say, well, you know, you let this go for 40 times, it must not be that important. You know, why is why is timeliness now all that important? Well, if you've if you've documented the fact that your benevolence, as you put it, um, and somehow you can show, look, we you know we were trying to do everything we could. Um, I think that's that inures to your benefit. If it looks like this came out of nowhere, you know, all of a sudden now, uh, whereas it been uh, acceptable for ten years or ten weeks or whatever. Now, all of a sudden, it's not. The The natural human reaction is to say, well, why now all of a sudden? And I think a lot of employers, frankly, exacerbate their legal troubles by either being too nice, you know, uh, uh, or uh, by just not being decisive because they're worried about, well, getting sued. And sometimes you're just better off being decisive and doing it. And as you say, taking whatever medicine is there, uh, I think... The medicine is less when you can when you can demonstrate that this thing is a non-negotiable. And right. that, and that goes to what you said about it being a good, you know, if you here's our policy. Our policy says timeliness is very, very important. Maybe even the policy says why timeliness is important. Maybe it, it links back to one of your, your core values as a company. You know, one of our core values is reliability. And if you're not here on time, that's unreliable. And when we hired you, we told you we wanted you to be reliable. Um, being able to tick and tie all of that together so that it doesn't look like there's something else going on, which is really what most jurors and judges are are reacting to when, uh, because very few cases these days of discrimination are, or even retaliation, you know, no one comes out and says, look, I'm, here's why I'm fine. I know I'm, it's, I've said this, but this is really why I'm doing it. And so it's really a circumstantial thing. And so if you look at the whole width and breadth and whoever the fact finder is, whether it's an administrative judge or a jury or, uh, you know, an elected judge, and they look at it and say, well, okay, they've made it that, you know, ACME has made it clear that timeliness is important uh, to their operation, and it's been communicated to this person, and they were given three opportunities, and, uh, you know, that's a different, that's a, that's a different uh, uh, narrative than, well, they let it go for so long, and then all of a sudden, they just came down on them um, without any real explanation. Um, I'm not saying that's what happened in your circumstance, but that's what I see frequently. Yeah, is like, yeah. you know, it's oh, like oh, it's it's just built up over time. And all right, son of a gun, we're gonna we're you know we're gonna bring the hammer down now. Um, and if there are other allegations of of wrongdoing, that can undercut that can undermine uh, your legitimate uh, business operation. Yeah. This is where the idea of optics or smell test comes in. You know, you, as an owner, you may have a good reason for doing what you did, but if you try to stand back and look at it objectively as an independent party, you can look at the optics of it to your point and say, well, uh, 
he let her go for 40 times. My God, you know, why now all of a sudden? And you, you kind of lose the sensitivity to the, I'm just tired of this. You know, this can't be, you know, can't keep going. We can't keep doing this. We've tried, we tried, we tried. And so, yeah, I, I think the message here, guys, is the idea that um, think about it, create a policy, live by that policy. And I, in all my experience, I've come back to the point, I don't know who first taught me about it, but there's a mantra that says, we tend to hire too fast and fire too slow. So we make bad choices on the front end because we're quick to want to put a body in a seat. And then once we get that body, if they don't work out, we take way too long to exit them and start the process over again. And that script needs to get flipped all the way up 180 degrees the other direction. We need to be much more methodical and intentional about how we identify people to join our work teams. And then we need to have a protocol and a standard that, that we're going to assert that says, here's the expectation. Here's how you can and might, might miss it. If these things happen, we're done. You're out. And I, and I think also, in, in addition to everything you just said, I think onboarding and training uh, tends to be too short. You know, again, you're, we're trying to get people on the line or whatever, um, bringing them in and really onboarding them and, and uh, getting them aligned with our values, getting them aligned with our mission uh, is very important. And then training them to do what you want them to do the way you want them to do it. Right. And, you know, there are lots of people that if you ask them, well, what do you do for a living? They'll say, well, I'm an accountant. Okay, well, are you an audit accounting? Are you a tax accountant? Are you a book? You know, there are all kinds of, of variations there. And an experienced accountant is has been trained to do things a certain way that may or may not be right, may or may not be aligned with how you want it done. And so unless you take the time on the front end to really go through your process, to go through what you expect the outcomes to be and how to get those outcomes, uh, you know, you it it it's only going to be by the grace of God that you actually get an employee that does what you want them to do. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, a lot of my listeners now in the last couple of episodes have heard me refer to this, but there's a story that I was introduced to a, a plumbing company in Denver that is just hitting on all cylinders. They, they are doing things as, a, as a, a private business that I've never seen before anywhere in any industry. And um, to your point about onboarding and training, one of the things this guy does is no new plumber, I don't care if he's got a master license, he doesn't get a truck to go out on his own and represent the company without going through, checking off, and completing 18 months of training. And the training is not just about the technical side of how do you fix a leaky pipe, but it's, it's customer service, it's uh, policy and procedure, it's learning the system on how they book their deals and, and run their tickets and collect payments and do estimates. It, it's a full gamut of, of training that makes the company run well. Now, these people during that 18 months, yeah, they go out on ride-alongs. They're, they're the second set of hands on jobs, but they don't get to have their own truck and their own dispatch until they've completed this 18-month program. And when those guys finally go out, 
there's several things that kick in. Number one, they get the freedom to run their own routes and get their own tickets. But with that, they get opportunity for extra commission and bonus for the things they do. But they've spent 18 months learning how the company wants it done. And this company has five-star ratings out the wazoo. They're, they're off the chart with customer satisfaction, callback, referral, all of those things that you would want in that kind of a business. And this is exclusively a residential plumbing company. They don't do any commercial. They don't do any construction. Mm -hmm. It's simply residential service. And it's a $10 million business. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I think it's it's one of the shortcomings of American business, uh, uh, the way we recruit and um, employees and then just, just throw them into the deep end and uh, just expect or hope that they're going to do a good job. And um, when turnover is such a huge uh, cost to a company, it, it's amazing to me that people, that business owners and business leaders don't spend more time making sure that they're putting um, people in the right spot and giving them all the tools they need to succeed. So, Alan, before we get off here, could could you sum up for an owner who maybe has not paid enough attention to the whole employment game, is there a, a short list of key considerations they ought to visit and explore to, to help get their house in the right order? Yes. Mission is the first thing. You've got to have a mission. And, and because you've got to have something, some common uh, pole that you can point to, to every person in your organization that they can be aligned with. This is our mission. Our mission here at, at the Crone Law Firm is to transform the American workplace one client at a time. And, and so when we hire people, we talk about that. And if you're not passionate about that mission, then you, it's probably not a good place to work for. You go find some place where you're you're passionate about that mission. And then everything flows from that. So you want to make sure you understand when you add a position or you create a position, how does this position uh, support the mission? What are the, the qualities that it, it's going to take? Write all this out. Write out a, a job description, not just of what tasks they're going to do, but who it all relates to, who they're accountable to. And then make sure that you really think long and hard about, okay, what is the unicorn that it's going to take to, to fill that role? And don't hire anybody until you reliably find some somebody that at least looks and walks and sounds like the unicorn that you want. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to get exactly what you want every time, but it's going to really increase the chances of that. And I think that that one thing, being self-aware about what it takes to be successful, how the person fits into the mission and the company and what the values of the company are. Um, if you're hiring to that, you're going to have a lot less turnover and, and couple that with the training that you're talking about. And, you know, all this documentation we're talking about, make sure that it is not punitive in nature, but is, is proactive training in nature. In other words, you know, I see people, we're going to give you a written warning. Well, if if the content of that looks like you're trying to set the person up to fire them, then that's going to have one set of uh, reactions in the jury room. But if the whole context of all this document is, is clearly 
trying to train the person, correct a problem, uh, get, as you said about the lady giving her every opportunity to succeed, then you're much less likely to be second-guessed by uh, a juror or someone down the road that your your intentions weren't uh, honorable. Uh, so that's the, that's always the first club out of my bag is spend time with your mission and spend time with your job descriptions. Make sure they're accurate. Update them frequently, once a year at, at the very least, to make sure that that if you were to read all of the job descriptions, that you would be getting an accurate picture of what's actually going on in your organization. I love it. <clears throat> I always used to shudder when I would see managers that would try to write these job descriptions. They might put three bullets in it, and then the fourth one was other duties as assigned. And I used to cringe at that because it, it it's like – no, it, 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 when you read the original three bullets, they're, they're not necessarily that comprehensive for what's really going on in the department. And that other duties as a sign, I've seen that getting chewed up in, in courtroom setting. It's like, yeah, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> in just about every legal <clears throat> aspect of employment law, the first document the, your adversary is going to want to see is that job description, and they are going to take it literally, and and so it better be tight. Uh, otherwise, you you may have some painful hours on in, in a deposition chair trying to justify what you've done based on what you've written. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Well, Alan, we're about up on time here, my friend. Thank you so much for sitting in. I think this was really powerful and helpful. If uh, people are interested in reaching out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, probably the best way is to Google me, Alan Crone, C-R-O-N-E, Attorney Memphis, and you'll get all kinds of information there. Uh, we also, I also have a, a website, CroneLawFirmPLC.com, and uh, I can be reached uh through that and uh, would love to help people, anybody uh, avoid legal problems when it comes to employment law. I always say, let's eliminate that and let's just go make money. <laughs> I love it. Sounds good. Well, one last time, thank you for sitting with us, Alan. I really appreciate your time here today. My pleasure. Enjoy talking with you, Doug. Yeah. Well, folks, with that, we are going to wrap this up. And uh, I always like to remind people we've got a video version of this over on YouTube, channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there, take a look at the archive and look at all the uh, other videos we've we've posted up there. And main thing, one way or the other, if you can get a hold of me, the best way to do that is go to my website, DougThorpe.com. That's T-H-O-R-P-E. Uh, you can leave me a note, uh, fill out the contact form, anything like that. If you've got a suggestion for a topic for the show or know someone who ought to be a guest, you'd like to make a referral or, heck, you might be a good guest for me, just let me know. Reach out and uh, drop me a line. Look forward to seeing you then. For now, we're going to say goodbye, sign off, and go out there and make it a great day. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.